0: Psalm chapter 95. I would suspect that probably most everyone in here this morning at some point has worked so hard that by the end of the day you just can't wait to fall into bed and get a good night's rest. Would that be pretty accurate? How many of you have gotten so weary, not because of a day of rest, or pardon me, a day of hard work, but because of the accumulation of a number of things that have perhaps drawn on you physically, maybe some things that have drawn on you mentally, or perhaps your emotions have been weighted down, perhaps even within your own spirit, your walk with the Lord, has become wearisome, and, and you're just tired. No matter how much sleep you get, you're just tired. Have any of you ever experienced that? Yeah, I, I think pretty much most of us here have gone through periods of time like that. And what you really are looking for is a period of rest, not just a night of sleep but of genuinely coming to the place in your own heart, in your mind, whether it is an emotional thing, a physical thing, a spiritual thing, whatever it is that's causing this weariness, you want to come to the place where you just can be at rest. I think sometimes that's what's often behind individuals taking their own lives. They are so weary by life and by the circumstances of life. And they can't find rest. And so they figure the only way out is to, in their mind, end it all. When in reality, they're just starting eternity apart from the Lord. When the psalmist, who is not identified in this particular psalm, is writing, he is writing to people that he wants them to be able to grasp what it is to be able to genuinely rest. To not be carrying the burdens, the anxieties, the negative anticipations, but actually laying hold of that which is beyond and above every one of those things to the point where your day-to-day routine of life is one in which you are genuinely at rest. You may still become physically tired at the end of the day because of hard work. And maybe it's even a mental tiredness because your job perhaps is not very physically oriented it's it's more mentally oriented you get to the end of the day and you can rest at night and you sleep and the next day you're going to be feeling a whole lot better that can be the case for those who genuinely understand what it is to be at rest when we read this psalm though it's not identified for us in the psalm itself later in the book of hebrews this psalm is quoted in the third chapter, in the fourth chapter, this is really uh, at the heart of what the, the uh, writer of Hebrews is recording for us, as well as the portion that we read in Exodus chapter 17. Those things all tie together. So I want you to listen as the psalmist writes to people that he wants them to be at rest, to have In essence, what it comes down to is to have a life that is lived above the circumstances that cause us to be weary. Listen as he records. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work, for forty years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. The psalmist is writing to individuals who, in his day, he would hope have found that rest that the Lord provides. And if they have, then what he tells them is this. And you know what's really interesting about this is, we we have a parallel with what we do today. When we gather together as a body of believers in Christ, we come together for... A number of different purposes. We come together for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, using the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given to us, and we use those gifts to encourage and to build up and to help strengthen one another. We come together for encouragement, because sometimes you may go through a period of time that's very difficult, and you just need somebody to maybe put their arms around you. And to. And I'm not speaking necessarily physically. Some of you are huggers. All right? I'm not a hugger, okay? Uh, Just so you understand this, don't come to me expecting me to throw my arms around you. I know. Some of you are greatly disappointed by that. I would also say this. I'm not opposed to it. And if somebody really needs a hug, after you talk to Larry... You can come to me. Pastor Steve is a hugger. He's a kisser, too. You know? I stay as far away from him as I possibly can. (laughs) By the way, Pastor Steve and Amy uh, are doing something for the first time today, and I am really happy for them. They are on a cruise. They've never been on a cruise. And um, can you all keep a secret... (laughs) So can I. Uh, No. (laughs) I know, i just messing with you. Um, We have a a pool in the office going as to how many pounds Steve is going to (laughs) gain. And we've got it all the way from four pounds up to nine. Luke, you have not put yours in yet, but you can either take three or ten. (laughs) So we've got everything in between. So anyway. When people are at rest, there are things that they can do, such as the things that we do when we gather together as a congregation, and beyond the things that I've already mentioned to you, look back at the text again and look at what people at rest can do from the very depths of their heart. In verse one, "Oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Part of what we do when we gather together before the Lord, is to sing. And part of that is because of the new song that he has put within our hearts, but we express through a variety of different musical means our our praise, our adoration, our thanksgiving to the Lord. And so he says, let's do that. Let's come together to sing. And then if you go further in verse 2, it says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, so that we have the opportunity to express before one another how grateful we are for what the Lord has done for us, what he has provided for us, the hope that he has given us, not just for this life, but for all eternity. So we come together and we sing, and we express our thanks. And then, if you drop down to verse six, 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Now, some of you recognize a song has been written from this passage. And, and, and didn't that come to mind as we were reading this? And, and you read through here, and the, the songwriter took the words right from this passage. Let us worship and bow down. And sometimes I'm afraid that we, we confuse the idea of singing being worship. Singing is part of worship, giving is part of worship. Using our spiritual gifts is part of worship. Expressing thanksgiving to the Lord is part of our worship. Encouraging one another is part of our worship. Hearing from the Lord is part of our worship. And so the writer is saying this, when you're really at rest, here's what you can do. These are the things that are going to characterize your life, especially when you come together And the reason for this is because the God that we are coming before is the true God who is above all gods. If you look with me uh, further down in this this chapter, we we read this and it says, uh, um, For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. Not only is he God, but there are no other true gods besides him. If you look over in chapter 96, you may not even have to turn your page. But if you drop down to verse 5, you read this. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. They're not real. They're imaginative. Or not imaginative. They are part of an imagination. They They are gods that people worship that they've made up within their own heart, within their own mind, and in some cases, with their own hands. And so, what the psalmist is saying is this. Why can we sing and thank and worship our God? It's because he is the true God. There are no other gods besides him. And he is not a localized God. He is a God who is everywhere. Which, by the way, Psalm 119 tells us. I can't go to heaven, but he's there. Listen to this. I can't go to hell, but he's there. If I take the wings of a a bird and I fly to the furthest points of the earth, he is there. And so we are talking about a God who is everywhere. Now that becomes important to the people who are reading this psalm in the day in which they're reading it. Because the peoples who surrounded the Israelites, being polytheists, believed that there were gods who were localized gods. It's part of the reason why, and I believe it was the Philistines, when the Philistines were fighting against the Israelites and they were being defeated by Israel in a particular geographic location, they tried to go someplace else because in their thinking, if they were fighting on the plains, the god that the Israelites had was a god of the plains. So let's fight them in the mountains, because their God won't be there. And then they go into the mountains to fight them, and the Israelites continue to win, and they continue to realize God is everywhere. Notice how the psalmist capitalizes on that. When you get to verse 4, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. He's down there. The heights of the hills are his also, The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. We sing to, we thank, we worship the God of all gods. He is the true and the living God who is everywhere present, and anywhere we go, we can extend that praise to him, that thanksgiving, that worship. We can sing to him. And he is the creator of all that exists. As we read in verse 5, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And he is above his people, not only as the creator, but he's our shepherd as well. So it brings in the power of God, and then it brings in the compassion that he has for his sheep. Look at what it says down here at uh, verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand and and when the psalmist uses that little phrase of his hand it it might be better understood we are under his care not only is he the creator but he loves us and he takes care of us and when he talks about being the sheep of his or the people of his pasture he is saying that everything we need our our nourishment uh All of the needs of our lives are met by Him. And so, we can rest. We know the true God. But there's a change that takes place right here in the middle of verse 7. And the change is reflective of what we read in Exodus chapter 17, where the children of Israel were tempting the Lord. They were testing the Lord. They were... Disbelieving the Lord, and and if we looked at the background that led us to Exodus chapter seventeen, just put this together very quickly in your mind. The children of Israel were in the were were held in bondage in Egypt, and they were living horrible lives. They were slaves, and they were being driven to the point of absolute physical exhaustion, and it was also bringing them to the place of mental and obviously spiritual exhaustion as well. And then God intervenes, and He brings the plagues, ten different plagues legs upon the children, uh, uh, upon the Egyptians, and finally they let the children of Israel go. And then as they're fleeing from, from Egypt, they come to the Red Sea, and the sea is blocking before them, and behind them comes the Egyptian army, because now Pharaoh has changed his mind. And so the children of Israel are crying out, what are we going to do? And they're, they're yelling at Moses. What did you do to us? But then God intervenes, and he, and he stands in a pillar of fire between the Israelites and the Egyptians and they can't come to them, And so Moses can step out into dry ground in the, the Red Sea and the children of Israel follow and now the Egyptians come down to try to capture them and the Lord brings the sea in upon them and they are killed. The enemy is defeated. And the children of Israel now begin their wandering in the wilderness and guess what they do? They grumble. They begin to complain. They come to this place where there is water, but the water is, as the Bible describes it, bitter. And, oh, we have this bitter water. Well, yeah, you can't drink it, but let me ask you this. Who are you really trusting in? Well, they keep going to Moses, and they keep saying to him, what have you done? And, the Lord comes to Moses and says, there is a tree, throw that into the water, and it will be made sweet. And, the, and, and Moses does that, and the water is now fit for drinking, and, and it was a divine act. It, it was uh, an act to show God's power, not, not to, there, there wasn't anything, it wasn't like a eucalyptus tree that suddenly neutralized the water or whatever. I don't know that eucalyptus does that, but you don't know either, so who cares? Um, and he throws that into the water and, and they drink it. And then later, then they start to complain about not having food. And so they complain to Moses again. And, and you brought us out here to let us die. And then God sends the manna from heaven. And they gather the manna. Although they do it, some of them do it disobediently. They're only supposed to gather for one day. But some, they're, they're going to, hey, I'm going to make sure my tomorrow's okay. I'm going to trust in myself. I'm not going to trust the Lord. not going to trust what he has to say. I'm going to trust myself. And so they gather together and the next day, the, the food that they had for one day is now rotten and putrid and inedible. And they have to learn that the Lord is their provider and he's the one who can give them rest. It doesn't last long. They go into the region of Rephidim and here the people are and they don't have water and did you notice as we read there is no mention of their going before the Lord asking him to provide their needs they said Moses what's wrong with you why did you bring us out here And they begin to rebel within their own hearts. But the truth of the matter is, they're not really rebelling against Moses. They're rebelling against God. And they become a perfect example to the people who would read this psalm of what it is like not to be at rest because they were not in a right relationship with their God. When you look at verse 7, it says this, Today, if you hear his voice, and now the writer goes on and he begins to tell us what we are to guard against if we are to enjoy the rest that God gives to his people. And the first thing that they see is these people had hardened hearts. Look at this. Do not harden your hearts As in the rebellion. The rebellion is a reference to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And so when that's being spoken of, notice how it goes on to describe it. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. Well, Well, what's going on with these children of Israel? Uh, They've got this hardened heart. And and what does that bring about? Well, it, it means essentially this. They are ignoring what God had already done. They had seen his deliverance. They had seen his provision. They had seen his protection. They had seen his guidance. His intent was to lead them to the land of Canaan, where, as they obeyed him and did what he told them to do, they would be at rest. They were heading to a land that had been developed for them by God that he describes as a land of milk and honey. I mean, it is a great place to be. But instead of trusting, they hardened their hearts... And now they ignore what he has done for them. They grumble. They complain. And then, to add to that, they begin to test the Lord. The Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 14, verse 22, and I won't take us there, but it says specifically that the the children of Israel tested the Lord ten times. Now, what those ten tests were, are not identified for us. Perhaps it was the ten plagues that came upon the Egyptians. That ten times, they, they were even doubting what God was going to do. I, I don't know. Maybe there were other events that took place. But we're told very specifically, they tested the Lord ten different times. And you can read that for yourself in Numbers chapter 14, verse 22. What that essentially meant was this. They were doubting God's intent to help them. They were not sure that God would help them. In spite of all the evidence that they had, in spite of everything that had been done on their behalf, they still did not get it. We are God's people. We have been set apart for the purpose of communicating to the world the truth that there is one God who is Jehovah, the Creator, the one who is all-powerful, the one who ultimately will be bringing redemption, not only for his people Israel, but for us as well. They're not buying this. They don't think that God would help them. And then it gets even worse. Notice how it goes on to say... uh, When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. Now they put God under trial, saying not only are we not convinced that he will help us, but we're not even positive that he can help us. How do you get to a place like that? How do do you say before God when you have seen the mighty works of his hands. Uh, You know, Lord, I'm I'm not really sure that you can help me. How would we handle that today? Lord, that difficulty that I'm going through, uh, I'm not sure that you really want to help me, so I'll, I'll test you. And then I'm not so sure that you can. I'm not sure that anybody can take care of this. And so we begin to worry. And in our minds, we begin to doubt. And we begin to fear what lies before us. And little by little, we become weary. Lord, are your intents for me good? Do you really have a plan that is being worked out on my behalf because I'm a child of yours, I've accepted Christ as my Savior, do, do do, you really have a plan that you can pull off that will ultimately be for my good? And when we're going through the negative period, which God often allows us to go through, that's part of his way of doing things. He lets us come like some people say, to the end of ourselves. And instead of casting our cares upon him, we begin to weary ourselves. And we're no longer at rest. Worried about tomorrow. Worried about next week. Worried about next year. And the worry and the doubt goes on and on and so here the 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 psalmist is telling this is exactly what the the children of Israel did they tried God they didn't think that he was trustworthy they didn't think that he was true Moses why did you bring us out here did you bring us out here to starve to death did you bring us out here to die of thirst why did you bring us out here And Moses goes before the Lord, and uh, you know what? It's a good thing that he had a place where he could rest. Because the Bible says he went to the Lord, and he says, Lord, you've got to help me. Now Moses is showing us his trust is where it belongs. "If If you don't help me, these people are about to stone me. And God says, I'll take care of you. I've got this under control. I'm going to see to it that everything works out right. And as we read, Moses was called to strike the rock. Isn't it interesting that the Lord said, I will be on that rock? Did did you catch that? He is going to be on, he is right there with Moses as he strikes the rock. And he says, I've got this under control. Well, that wasn't enough for the children of Israel, because as we read further in this 95th chapter of the Psalms, we find out that not only was their heart hardened, but it strayed. Look at what it says down there in verse 10. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation, and said it is a people who go astray in their hearts. Now, he helps us understand what does it mean to go astray in your heart? He tells us in the next segment, and they do not know my heart ways. In essence, what the Lord is saying is this, the people of Israel have become willingly ignorant of my ways. Now, that makes sense, because they've seen the plagues in Egypt, they've seen the water sweetened, they've seen the the sea divided, they've seen the bread provided, they've seen the water come out of the rock, and yet they're saying this, well, we're really not sure how the Lord works. Have you ever heard the expression, ignorance of the law is no excuse? Yeah, Uh, try, try to tell a police officer who stops you for speeding that you didn't know what the speed limit was. First thing he's going to say is, oh... I'm so glad to hear that because I thought you were doing this on purpose. Uh, Boy, thanks for telling me that. (laughs) Those of you who have recently gotten tickets, I saw a lady stopped again this morning on uh, Wilds. She didn't learn her lesson because she pulled out in front of me as I'm going around where the police officer has her pulled over and she is blowing down Green Road well over the speed limit. I'm thinking, okay, good for you, lady. You'll get the second ticket. I won't get any. So I pulled in right behind her. Uh, No, (laughs) no. The people of Israel, all they had to do was open their heart to what God was doing for them. And they would have known his way. God has some unusual ways of doing things. But his way is always the right way. I'll talk about that more later on. We'll we'll get to that later. So now, here are the children of Israel. They have this hardened heart. They have this straying heart. And then beyond that, we're told that their heart was an unbelieving heart. Because, as I told you before, this passage is quoted verbatim in Hebrews Third and fourth chapter, it it deals with that. And here in Hebrews, the the third chapter, the twelfth verse, we read this. It says, um, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, why do I introduce that verse at this point? It's because immediately before Hebrews 3.12, is the quotation from this Psalm 95. So what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that it was unbelief that was behind Israel's response to God and the way that he did things. And it indicated not just that they had unbelief, but it takes us further because the words that are used here, when it says that they went astray in their hearts, it indicates opposition, active opposition, Not a submission, and not even a passive neglect of what God said. But an active opposition to what God was doing in their lives. So now, we have hardened hearts, we have straying hearts, we have unbelieving hearts, and then we come to this conclusion in verse 11. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Do you remember what happened to that generation? They never made it into Canaan. Canaan had been promised, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land where they would prosper, the land that God had promised to give them, but they didn't believe him. You remember how uh, they sent the spies and and the ten spies, and maybe that's part of the temptation, those ten temptations. The ten spies went into the land and, and they came back uh, twelve spies went in, two came back saying hey, it's ours, we can take that Joshua and Caleb, but the other ten said no, and so the children of Israel said okay, we're, we're not going in we're not going in, now that's active opposition to the will of God and for the next forty years those twenty years of age and over all died in the wilderness They never entered God's rest. That was a pretty important message for the children of Israel, even in the day in which this psalm was being written. Probably being written by David... Because the writer of Hebrews refers to David in the midst of the quotations. But that could also mean David is an indicator of the Psalms. And so I don't want to narrow it down just to David. And You know what? I don't know that that matters a whole lot for our purposes. But the psalmist is saying this. There is a way to enter into God's rest. And my chosen people failed to do that. And so he gives us a clue as to what that applies to today. And we go back, and, 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 and you look at the same things that the children of Israel um, went through. Uh, sometimes what happens is the rest that God has provided for people, a rest that puts them at peace with him A rest that brings them into a relationship with Him that will give them confidence in spite of the circumstances of life, in spite of the events that are taking place. This rest will enable them to be able to be at peace because their souls have been cared for through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. But what happens? The same thing that happened with the people of Israel. The people hardened their hearts. They ignore God's call. Do you you notice what it says back there in the middle of verse 7? Today, if you hear His voice, and when the word hear is used there, it means to listen with obedience. But a hard heart says this, in spite of what you, God, have provided for my eternal benefit, at the cross of Calvary, I will not obey the call to come to Christ. Christ died for our sins. And he was buried. And he rose again from the dead so that if by faith I trust in him and him alone, my sins are forgiven and I'm given eternal life. Some of you may have heard a a message this week uh, by Erwin Lutzer. And Erwin Lutzer, um, he did something that I admire and I appreciate his courage for doing because this flies in the face of what's probably being done in many churches today. I agreed with him 100%. He said, some of you who believe that you're saved you're resting in walking an aisle and coming to the front of a church. And he said, that will not save you. He said, some of you are resting in a prayer that you prayed. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. And I agree with him 100%. No prayer will ever save you. You can say the words, but unless the heart believes... Unless the heart is open to the truth of what Christ did for you at the cross of Calvary. You're not saved. And then he went on to say this, and I really appreciated this. He says, you know, you'll talk to young people today and you'll ask them if they're saved and their parent will chime in. Oh yes, don't you remember when you went forward? Don't you remember when you prayed the sinner's prayer? He says, parents, don't you dare do that. If they think they're not saved, let them be unsaved. Do you get what he's saying? Unless there is a heart reception of what Christ did, their heart is still hardened to the truth of the gospel. And it doesn't matter how many times you have heard the gospel. You may even be a member of this church. And somehow you knew the right words to say and you snuck in and you are counting on all sorts of things to commend you before God. And the truth of the matter is that unless you by faith embrace and rest upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, you're not saved. Unless we accept him personally. Some of you may wonder, why, why doesn't pastor ever ask for personal invitations? I, I've just really been turned off by him. I I understand good people will give the invitation to come forward. I understand that. I I get it. But I want to tell you, it's much more important that wherever you are sitting or standing or, or lying in your bed, you realize, I am a sinner and I need a Savior and it's only Christ who can give me forgiveness and give me eternal life and I trust in Him and I rest in Him alone. That's where you find eternal life. It is by grace are you saved through faith. Don't let your parents ever talk you into thinking you're saved. If you think you're not saved, you need to be saved. You need to accept Christ. And listen, we know you can only get saved one time, right? Once you have eternal life, you have eternal life. But if you have to do it a dozen times to get it settled, do it a dozen times. Lord, I I believe. One of those is the one that takes. I, I hope you all understand what I'm saying. You know what it really comes down to? Unless God opens your heart to receive him, you won't believe anyway. But if the Lord is opening your heart, you better respond. Because that's our part. We respond in faith and we trust in Christ. Well... People today do the same thing that the Israelites did. They harden their hearts. They have straying hearts. Um, They will deliberately be ignorant about what God's word has to say. You know, uh, this is something that, that just drives me crazy. Do you guys like planning for your vacations? I think about vacations all the time. All right. I've already got an iron in the fire for next June. And I still have vacation time coming up this, this year yet because somebody wrote into our policy, if you don't use it, you lose it. And pfft. So I'm going. <laughs> no, no, it's the right thing to do. I understand that. But I sit at night with my computer on my lap and I go on to the Good Sam Club and I outline a trip. And right now I don't know if this is going to happen, but I have a trip next summer going up to Acadia National Park up in Maine, and we'll stop at our kid's place in Georgia. Then we'll head over to Gatlinburg and we'll go see Dollywood, and then from there we'll we'll really get don't laugh Dollywood is cool, um, <laughs> and then we'll go up and we'll we'll try to go up to Acadia, go to Bar Harbor. Uh, my wife will get the the Maine lobster, and. Uh, she loves Maine lobsters. <laughs> do you realize up there they're like four fifty a pound? I'm gonna take a cooler with me and load it up. Anyway, I, I've got that all planned out. And here's the thing: others of you will do the same thing, but you haven't spent that much time thinking about your eternal well-being. What's wrong with that picture? You have willfully strayed in your heart by being ignorant of what God said is necessary to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And it all comes back to the third element of unbelief. You just won't wrap your arms around Christ and trust Him. And and let me just say this to you. It may be that you're sitting here today and you're saying, but I I don't really feel that I believe in Jesus. May I make a suggestion to you? And I, I mean this in all sincerity. If you are in that kind of a situation, will you go before God and say, God, if Jesus is truly the way, the truth, and the life, And no one can come to you but through him. Please open my heart to the truth of what Christ did for me. You can never go wrong praying that. Unless you accept Christ, you will never enter his rest. That's the way the writer of Hebrews took this said, you want to enter rest with God and eternity and and allow your your issues of life to be in His hands? Then, Then you need to trust in Him. But let me take you to a third element. This is also true of believers. There are believers who have eternal life, but they are not enjoying the rest that we have in Christ. And it's because of hardened hearts. And it's because of hearts that have gone astray. And it's because of hearts that are engaged in unbelief. We don't believe that our God is the omnipotent God of all creation who has every circumstance of life under His control. There is no difficulty, no trial, no hardship that will ever enter your life that he does not have the absolute capability to either relieve you from that hardship or cause that hardship to ultimately work to your benefit. You need to know the ways that God works. Have you ever noticed how God will leave you oftentimes wondering what you're going to do and you come right up to the decision time and then all of a sudden you have direction? And you're all worried up until that point. Or, th- th- let me just tell you something, maybe I'm wrong on this, but, but this is an observation about God's ways that, that I have seen, and it just seems to be over and over and over again. You will, you will have a direction in life, and you'll be moving toward something that would really be nice and satisfying. Uh, let, let's use this as an example. You're going to buy a house, and you found the perfect house. And you've made an offer on the house. And the people have accepted the offer. And you have a, an inspection done. And the inspection finds a few little things here and there, but nothing that's a major consequence. And so now you're able to say, okay, I would like this fixed, and, and uh, we, we'd like to move forward with this. And, and then the person says, all right, we, we can do that. Uh, we'll take care of that, and now, now we're going to move into this house. And then you go to the bank and the bank... Some of you may have gone before this, but it's an illustration. And the bank says, well, I'm sorry, we we have found some things in your credit history that prevent us from extending to you the, the mortgage. And all of a sudden, the thing that you had been hoping for, it's evaporated. And now it's gone. And you stand there. And then you get a phone call. Maybe a week later, and the person on the other end of the phone says, "Uh, Mr. Wingenroth, um, I'm calling you from Wells Fargo. And that mortgage request that you made, uh, that we turned you down on, we really meant that. We're not giving you a dime. No. (laughs) I can't help myself. Stuff like that comes to my mind. And they say, you know, we made a mistake in our paperwork And everything is uh, going to go through for you. And the sellers have agreed that uh, they will sell you the house. I can't tell you how many times I've had things that I've wanted. Then it looks like they're gone. And next thing you know, God restores it. And then all I can do is stand back and say, Lord, this was you. This was you. That's the kind of God we have. It's the kind of God in whom we can rest. When unbelievers... What did I do? Oh, somebody took me back to the beginning. This is where I want to be right now. For Israel, rest involved possession of the land God promised them. For unbelievers, rest involves repose on Christ for forgiveness and life. For believers, rest involves a settled confidence in God's loving concern, his care, and his veracity, his truth. Rest. Rest. Let's stand. Father, we are very guilty of many of the same things that the Israelites in the wilderness were guilty of. And yet, Lord, we have your word. We've seen your hand move on our behalf in so many ways. And so I pray for the dear people of Grace Baptist Church that the things that are causing them anxieties, the pressures of life that are coming down upon them, the emotional strains, perhaps even the physical issues, the spiritual battles. I pray that you would cause us never to harden our hearts, never to ignore your ways, and never to doubt your love. I pray that we would find genuine rest in you. Amen.